0: So like I said, we're going to be in Jonah for the next few weeks, Um, and the reason for that being, and really we don't need to justify it too much, Jonah's in the Bible, (laughs) Uh, it's the Word of God, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scriptures God breathes is profitable for teaching and training in righteousness, Uh, so we don't need much justification for why we're going into a certain book of the Bible, Uh, but at the same time, the reason it comes to my mind is because here the word of the year is behold. And I think the book of Jonah, um, in in a special way, really does help us do that. Help us behold the mercy of God. And and in a way that's unique, because the book of Jonah is unique among the other prophet books in the Old Testament. Because in the majority of the prophet books in the Old Testament, you have the dictated words of the prophets that you're reading. That's not the case here. Jonah just says a handful of words. Uh, Here instead... We have the life of Jonah explained to us. So we get this unique look into the mercy of God through a very relatable story in Jonah. That's only one of the reasons why the book of Jonah is unique. But I think it helps us here in this, this year of beholding. We get to behold the mercy of God through the, using the window into uh, Jonah's life. So I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a great few weeks that we have together. Let's, let's do this. Jonah's 17 verses. I'm not going to read it all together now, but just believe me as we go through all 17 ver- 16 verses, because we're not going to get to the last verse. That'll be next week, because the last verse is a bit of a spoiler for chapter 2. Uh, but we'll get through 16 verses here together, and then, and then continue there. Uh, because really, we all need to recall the mercy of God, because uh, we're all runners. Jonah's running from God here in chapter 1. And, and and what what's helpful about the book of Jonah is well first of all those those of us that have grown in the church I think stories like the book of Jonah have been vegetabled, <laughs> uh, but, and by the way that's not a shot against vegetales it's fine, um, but I'm saying some stories like Jonah uh, we've we've heard them so much we can summarize them and therefore we think we know them, um, but but and, and I think that that ability to summarize sometimes bring, causes us to hesitate to dive deep. Right? Whenever I use the word dive, try not to laugh. All right? but, but I think it does sometimes. At least it does for me. And so, so these next few weeks, we get a chance to dive deep uh, into the book of Jonah and really get as much as we can out of it because there is so much. Uh, really, we think, we think of the book of Jonah, we think of um, a fish, but the fish is mentioned three times. The name Jonah and the city of Nineveh, if you put those two things together, mentioned 27 times. The name of God, which there are two that are used, mentioned 42 times. So the book of Jonah is not about primarily a fish, though that's pretty special, I suppose. It's about God, and specifically his mercy for an individual and his mercy for a nation. So we're gonna dive deep because we're all runners we all tend to run from God. We're all sinners just like Jonah. And we need to remember and recall his mercy and return back to him uh, because, it's, because it's readily available for us. Um, and I'll also say a unique aspect of the book of Jonah um, is that it's meant to be read reflectively in that um, in the original language, I'll try to explain this the best I can. The best way, okay, hold on, hold on in order to get what you can out of Jonah. Whenever you get to the place in the book of Jonah and you think to yourself, man, Jonah's a really bad guy. Like, awful. And you'll find, he is. Pretty bad. Like, man, he's just terrible, like just prejudiced, just awful human being. We're supposed to think to ourselves, ah, that's me. And the reason why we believe that that's the way we're to interpret it is because, um, traditionally speaking, in the original language, That's how it's written, and how do we know that? Once a year in Yom Kippur, Jonah, which is a Jewish tradition, uh, Jonah is read aloud. And at the end of the reading, collectively, all those in attendance will say, I am Jonah. Uh, Because scholars believe that the book of Jonah was was written, and, and God ordained the life of Jonah in such a way that it was to convict the hearts of the Israel people and say, no, Jonah's you. right? You flee from my calling on your life. You, you don't listen when you're supposed to. You're not living the way you're supposed to. And so as we're reading and, and you get to the place, you're like, ah, oh, Jonah again? He's running again. There was a fish and he still can't get it right. We're supposed to think to ourselves, I can't get it right. I'm Jonah. So as we go through today, it's supposed to be very reflective. In the original language, that's how it's written. And actually Jonah, we know his occupation, he's a prophet, Right? And he's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. And that is in 2 Kings chapter 14. And he was prophesying for the absolutely wicked king, Jeroboam II. If you had like a tier list of worst kings, Jeroboam II, somewhere close to the top. Wicked king. And what's interesting is Jonah prophesies favor over the wicked king of Jeroboam II, which is fine. It seems all good. But then there's a contemporary prophet named Amos who also prophesies for Jeroboam II. And so Jonah here, he prophesies favor that he's going to win these battles and get, regain his territory in the northern kingdom. Those things don't come true, but Amos' prophecy that he would be destroyed do come true. So what do we know about Jonah before going in? We know he's a prophet, which means it's not unusual that he would receive a word from God, but we know that his prophecy was overturned. So one scholar puts it this way. Say, the reality that Jonah's prophecy is overturned should make us at least suspicious of his character. So right away going into this book, this is what we know of Jonah. So let's dive in. We're, We're going to start in the first three verses here. And remember, as we go through, our tendency is to run from God. And we see this life of Jonah, we're supposed to be thinking to ourselves, oh, that's me, I'm Jonah, I need his mercy every single day of my life because my tendency is to run from God. So what we get is a description of a runner, a description of a runner, what it looks like to be someone who runs from God, be someone who rebels against him. So let's read the first three verses here together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... from the presence of the Lord. So what we see here in the first three three verses, we see two things. First, as runners, we refuse the call of God to go. And this is the first characteristic of a runner that we're gonna see. Someone who is running from God refuses the call to go. So right, right off the bat here at the beginning of the story of Jonah, we see that God speaks to Jonah tells him to deliver a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. And again, it's not unusual for for Jonah to receive a job to to preach his word, to speak his word. But another unique aspect of the book of Jonah is that God is not calling Jonah to speak to his own people. God is calling Jonah to speak to another nation. And we know, a lot of us, intercultural, we live in a country that's maybe not our own, we interact with people. Intercultural communication is already difficult, right? But it's not just intercultural communication. But now Jonah is being called to to preach a message of repentance to an enemy nation. And it's not just any enemy nation. It's Nineveh. And Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. They were bad news. They, They were known for being absolutely cruel. They were known for skinning people alive, torturing, killing children. Uh, Beheading people, putting them on top of spikes and marching to their next destination to conquer someone. Like this was Nineveh. So no doubt, historically speaking, Jonah can recall instances of, of Nineveh doing that, maybe even to his own people. And now Jonah is being called not just to arise and go outside of his nation, which is already uncomfortable, but he's being called to arise and go to an enemy nation, Nineveh. And so that's the call on Jonah's life. To go to Nineveh, an enemy, wicked nation, and preach a message of warning to them. For some of us here, God will send you to a foreign country to share the gospel. Others of us will stay here. You'll stay in Korea. God has called and commanded all of us to be a witness of the people in our contexts to those here who don't know Christ. And maybe you know this or not, but roughly 52 million people are in South Korea. 43 43 million of them, at least statistics tell us, are lost. 43 million people who don't know God, who are opposed to God. So we are called, wherever we go, in whatever context we find ourselves in, like Jonah, God has called us to arise and go. So The question that comes to my mind, again, we are Jonah, I'm Jonah, How are you responding to that call? What message are you bringing to the people in your life? And maybe some of us here today are refusing that call. Maybe busyness causes you to never think about the lost. Or you know God is calling you to do or say something difficult or uncomfortable for the kingdom, but uh, you, you prioritize comfort over calling. And that's the first principle we see here today. As runners... As those that tend to run from God, we often refuse the call of God to go. But also something we see here in the first three verses is as runners, we flee from the presence of the Lord. We see that here. We flee from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now we're not sure the exact location of Tarshish. Scholars assume that maybe it's, it's near southern Spain, which would be in the opposite direction. I was told that I should have had a map up here. I don't. Opposite direction of Nineveh. All right. So it's southern Spain-ish. So God calls him to Nineveh. He's on his way. Here's your her map. God calls him to Nineveh. He's on his way to southern Spain. Or maybe it's flipped for you. God's on his way to Nineveh. God called him to Nineveh. On his way to southern Spain, Tarshish. So it's in the opposite direction. But what's more interesting is that Jonah here is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, which we know, and believe me, Jonah would have known. We learn in chapter four, Jonah's got pretty good theology. He's a prophet. So I don't believe he's trying to flee from the physical presence of God, God is everywhere, that's impossible. Uh, But but what we do learn, so so we have to to ask ourselves, what does the presence of the Lord mean here? And in Genesis chapter three, verse eight, I think we find the answer. Remember Adam and Eve, they've sinned against God for the first time and, and now look what they do here in chapter three, verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here we see Adam and Eve physically hiding from God, but it's not about location. The word presence in both cases in Jonah and in Genesis is literally translated or literally in the original face. So it's not that Adam and Eve or Jonah were running from the physical location where God was, but rather they were running away from God relationally. And this is actually the essence of sin, running from a relationship with God. And maybe you've been in a place where you're running from God relationally or fleeing his presence. Maybe there's an area in your life you don't want to give up, you don't want to stop doing, so you don't seek his face anymore. You flee from his face. You you flee from his presence. And the text tells us here, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, the location is actually significant because Tarshish is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. So, not only is Tarshish the opposite direction of Nineveh, but also Tarshish, the city of Tarshish, represents pride, another place in the Old Testament, haughtiness, self sufficiency. Wealth, and and I'll show you that here. There's a couple of Old Testament examples I'll use. First, Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah. It says, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. So there we see ships of Tarshish, and then again in Ezekiel, which is next on the slide, The ships of Tarshish traveled for you with your merchandise, your riches, your wares, or your wages. When your wares came from the seas, you satisfied many peoples. With your abundant wealth and merchandise, you enriched the kings of the earth. So here we have this picture of the ships of Tarshish, or a ship going to Tarshish, representing this wealth, this pride, and this haughtiness. So Jonah, in a sense, could be that he's running to Wall Street, He's chasing wealth, thinking it would make him safe and take him where he wanted to be. So I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is your Tarshish? Uh, Why do you tend to flee from the presence of the Lord? How have you hoped that a ship headed there to your Tarshish would take you away from everything you fear? So instead of running to the cross, you run to this thing in your life because we're all runners. That's what we're learning here. We all believe that our ways are better than God's ways. We all want to follow our plans and not his. We all tend to want control of our life instead of letting God be our navigator. And we know from scripture that Jonah was a follower of God. And he apparently loved God, wanted to live for God, which is why he was made a prophet. But we see here that his relationship with God in some ways was conditional. And by that, I mean he was, he was willing to follow God as long as he could do what he wanted to do. And, and, and sometimes we're no different. We, we often say we're followers of Christ, but we only really follow him when he leads us where we want to go or when he, when he asks us to do things that we want to do. So the question I ask myself is, what conditions have I put on God in my walk with him? Because as runners... Those that tend to flee the presence of those that tend to run from God, we tend to flee from the presence of the Lord. But also we see here, we're going to read this in verses 4 through 5. As runners, sin always has consequences, but God is always merciful. And we'll read verses 4 through 5 here together. But the Lord... "'hurled a great wind upon the sea. "'There was a mighty tempest on the sea, "'so that the ship threatened to break up. "'Then the mariners were afraid, "'and each cried out to his God. "'And they hurled cargo that was in the ship "'into the sea to lighten it for them. "'But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship "'and had lain down and was fast asleep.' So here, what we see in verses four through five is that Jonah's decisions aren't just affecting him. It's not just affecting the nation of the the city of Nineveh, but it's also affecting the sailors around him. Because here we have, they're throwing their goods, their merchandise outside of this ship. They're losing their goods. And potentially, Jonah's actions could have cost them their life. Because when we sin against God, the result is not just separation and brokenness with God, but also separation and brokenness with people. Uh, Simply put, our our sin affects others. Uh, We never sin in private. Uh, For some of you, your friends are suffering because of your disobedience to God. Uh, Your sin has uh, maybe made us bad fathers or mothers or an unfaithful friend or a disappointing husband or wife. And the greatest gift that you can give to anyone who knows you, the greatest gift I can give to anyone who knows me, to my wife, to my kids, to my coworkers, to my neighbors, to my missional family, to those close to me, the greatest gift I can give them is my personal holiness. Because when we walk close with God, others are affected. When we're not walking close with God, others are affected. And of course, I do it for God's sake, primarily, for his honor and his glory, and for my own sake, but also we keep in mind the sake of others, those around us. The greatest gift that you can give anybody is your own personal holiness. Think of it like this. I just got off a flight, and actually, uh, on the flight, we had probably the worst turbulence I've experienced, which isn't saying too much, I suppose, but it was one of those where you feel the plane go up, 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 and you just know, here it comes. Down, 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 right? So, you you know, you feel that, and... uh, funny part was, I, I'm like over here, you know, looking at my wife like, I love you, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but but my, my daughter, Leah, she's just like, oh, this is so fun. She literally said, this is so fun. Uh, but yeah, of course, of course, it was fine. But on flights, uh, you, you get the, the tutorial of, um, you know, how to stay safe in case of the unlikely event of an emergency. Um, and many of us have memorized those things because we fly so much. But one of the things is uh, when the oxygen mask comes down, uh, don't put it on yourself first. Put it on your child or someone who needs assistance. Uh, because the truth is, you have to be breathing before you can help your child. And it's the same thing spiritually. If you're passed out spiritually, you'll hurt those around you. And, and, and this is, the I think, the principle we're seeing here. Sin always has consequences. Not just for yourself, but also for those around you. But like I said before, God is always merciful. And we see the mercy of God here in this instance, in the storm. I've heard it said before that the storm was maybe the judgment of God on Jonah. But I think the judgment of God on Jonah would have been to let him go to Tarshish, let him flee the presence of the Lord, the face of God. Uh, but the, judge, but the, the grace here, the mercy here is that he runs after the runner and he sends a storm. God sends this storm as an act of mercy because he knew it was the only way he could bring Jonah back into his presence. Now, let's be clear. Jonah deserved for God to let him go. God could have let him go. You and I would have let him go. But God is merciful and he sends the storm. And our story is the same. Because of our sin, we deserve to be totally separated from God, away from his presence. But because of God's mercy... And thank Him, thank God for sending Jesus so that we have a way back into relationship with Him, a way back into His presence. Because as runners, our sin always has consequences, but our God is always merciful. So we have this storm, we have Jonah, and the story, Jonah's sleeping right now, and the the story continues here in verses 6 through 8. We'll read that together verses 6 through 8. So the captain came to him, came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account This evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Now this is super ironic uh, because we see the pagan captain of the ship repeating the command almost to arise, to get up, right, and go. Go pray to your God. The prophet is having to be reminded to pray. Uh, God can use whatever circumstance, uh, whatever ways he wants to wake us up. In this case, he uses a pagan sailor to wake Jonah up. And actually, it's the same phrase, right? Same words in the original. Arise, get up, same word. So here, this is Jonah's reminder to go back to God, to stop running. Again, an act of mercy. And we also see that the people here cast lots. They're casting lots. And we see that a few times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And essentially, it's it's throwing dice But God uses this as a means to point out that Jonah is at fault here and that the storm is because of him. So then they ask him the question, what is your job? Where are you from? Who are you? And so Jonah answers them. And he says to them in verse 9, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah tells them, I worship the God who made the sea that's trying to kill us and he made the dry land that we're trying to get to. So we learn about Jonah here, not too bright, but it leads us to our fourth point. As runners, we often honor God with our lips, but not with our actions. Because here, Jonah's saying all the right things. In fact, we learn again in chapter four and other places in the book of Jonah, he knows the right things. He has pretty good theology. But his theology is not put into practice. Because the reality is, and we see it all throughout Scripture, knowing God and obedience are always linked together. True faith always leads to right action. So Jonah could say all the right words, but without the action behind it, his words are empty. And it's the same for you, and it's the same for me. We can come here, we can worship. With song and even agree with and enjoy the, the teaching. But what does your life actually look like? Or, in other words, does the life you are living reflect the faith that you claim to have? Because knowing the information is important. Debating theology is important. We should know those things. We should, we should be passionate about those things. But if you're not living the information, it's pointless, it's absolutely useless. And as runners, we tend to honor God with our lips, but not with our actions. And I'm just gonna stop here for a second and ask the question, I don't think it's gonna be up on the slides, but what keeps us off the wrong boat? Right? How, do we, how do we stay off the wrong boat in our own lives, in our walk with God? And I think two things that we can glean uh, just quickly here from these first few points is this. First. Intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. Seeking, his relation, seeking a relationship with Him daily. Uh, but second, and this is where I want to stop for a second, is Bible application. Bible application. Um, because I think so often we can come to church, we can be convicted, we can, uh, you know, Pastor James up here, sometimes he's stomping on the stage, you know, like, and, and it's good teaching and it's, and it's great. And, and there's even application for us to, to go home to but how often are we making that a habit in our own lives? To where even in our personal study, okay, one thing I'm going to take from this, and I'm going to do it today. One thing I'm going to take from this, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And we seriously live intentionally in Bible application. Because if you're not doing that, once again, you can come on Sunday and be super you know, lit by the Spirit. But if you're not doing it, it is useless. It's pointless. So I think secondly, how do we keep off the wrong boat First, intimacy with God, seeking his face, but also Bible application and making it a habit. Well, then we continue into verse 10. And the sailors respond to Jonah's claims. And they say this. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So here in chapter one, we've found Jonah's lowest point. Uh, He's come to his end and would rather die than turn back. And follow God. And, and he's clearly in a very dark place, ashamed of what he's done and what he's become. So, ending his life seems to be the best option here for him. And maybe it would save the sailors as well. And then, verse 13 continues Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more, the, the sea grew stronger and stronger against them. I mostly said stronger and stronger because I didn't want to try to say tempestuous again. Tough word. And this is really amazing because we see irony once again. Irony has trickled throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah should be the one loving and caring and giving the message of salvation. But instead, it's the pagan men who show love and care and attempt to save Jonah's life. And as hard as they tried, it was no use against God. And then verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord. They did that before Jonah. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So here again we see the character of God. Jonah chose to flee from God because he did not want to bring the message of repentance to pagan people. And yet he finds himself thrown from a boat with pagan pagan sailors who now repent and fear the Lord. So he tried not to to be a prophet, but ended up being a prophet because God's still using him even though he's running away. And I think the message we can take from this, this uh, finishing portion here, is that God is sovereign over his plan of salvation. You and I can run from God's mission, but God is gracious, and his plan for the world is going to be accomplished. He's going to save people who are far from him, with or without us. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to give us the opportunity to be used by him. And of course, what a blessed opportunity that is to be used by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So here we come to the end of chapter one. And we'll save verse 17 for next week. Again, it's a spoiler. But in chapter one, uh, what have we learned? I think we see in chapter one a picture of the gospel. Jonah, running from God, isn't saved or brought back into right relationship with God until he realizes it's on him. He's the problem. He's running. And he tells the sailors, no, this, this, this. Storm is because of me. I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And until he confesses and admits that, then salvation comes. And the same is true of us. Salvation comes to those that admit and confess really, I am Jonah. I'm a runner. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God and I've been running from his presence. And the reality is, we're all sinners, we're all runners. Maybe you've refused his call on on your life. Maybe you've fled from his presence. Maybe you haven't been living the Christian life as you should. I think the call of Jonah chapter 1 is to arise and go to the foot of the cross where we find his mercy, forgiveness, and life-filled presence. And that's really the gospel, I think, that we see in Jonah chapter 1. I was asked to do this, and I will do this. This isn't something I tend to do. I don't, I don't tend to ask you to repeat something back to me, but I'm going to do it today. I'm going to ask you to repeat, I am Jonah. So we repeat. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Goodness. So obedient. No. Um, so we just read through the entire book of Jonah. So now I'll say, I am Jonah, and then you'll say, I am Jonah. I am Jonah. I am Jonah. All right, let's pray. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We'll close in prayer together.